You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Now's Rheumatology Roundup, a live session presenting highlights of the 2021 virtual meeting called ACR Convergence. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm joined by my good friend, Artie Cavanaugh from UCSD and the Center for Innovative Therapies. We're coming to you live from the garage and dining room. And yes, we are wearing slippers. In this program, we'll be discussing abstracts and presentations of interest in this year's meeting. Please note the abstracts were chosen without influence from the society, industry, people we play Doom with. Artie, what's the Minecraft? Is that the better game? Minecraft is back again. Yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's the thing now. Um, so, Fortnite's yesterday. Yeah, so we're, you know, we're, we're instead of watching abstracts, we're doing Minecraft. But anyway, abstracts were, were chosen because of their innovation and impact on practice. This is a live session. Um, this is our uncensored views on these topics. Reproduction of this award-winning live-streamed event is heartily encouraged because it's the internet. We can do whatever we want to do. Um, I want to encourage the audience that if you have questions and comments, put them in the chat box. We'll be monitoring those and hopefully getting to some of them. I want to um, uh, say that Room Now's coverage of this event has been bigger than ever. We had at this point 1,300, over 1,300, almost 1,400 tweets, 143 videos. Our, our Twitter account has had like almost 17 million impressions. I mean, this is the way of the world. Are you on Twitter, right? I have heard of Twitter and the Book of Face, but I am on neither. All right. With that, Artie, why don't you start us off? All right. Well, thanks, Jack. Thanks to the Room Now audience for being here at Rheumatology Roundup. Maybe the uh, people who are on the West Coast can share with me. Since the meeting was supposed to be in San Francisco, why did the virtual meeting start at four in the morning? Just ask. And I just uh, I think like most of us have been going to a lot of the meeting, trying to capture all the good stuff and uh, really uh, try to bring some of that to you. So I'm going to start out with one of the late breakers. Uh, you know, usually Jack and I like to walk the poster room, uh, the the poster sessions, to just go up and talk to people. And of course, you can't do that at the meeting, but uh, um, still, there was a whole bunch of presentations. This one happens to be one of the late breakers. This is uh, L19. This was the Titan study, which for those of you who remember, it was a Sekikinumab study. The Sekikinumab psoriatic arthritis studies were called Attain. So this is Titan, I guess, keeping with it. Anyway, small study, phase two study of sikikinumab in giant cell arteritis. So uh, talk about an unmet need. Um, you could argue about the rationale and say, would you expect it to work? Would you not expect it to? But the results um, I thought were really quite, quite remarkable. It, the study design was uh, uh, biologic naive patients who were either New, newly diagnosed with giant cell arteritis or were uh, flaring, relapsing, and they were treated with a, a steroid tapering design because you can't, of course, you can't not treat. The primary endpoint was those in sustained remission. And sustained remission, this came up in the questioning, it was defined clinically, no signs and symptoms, and also low acute phase reactants, but um, it would seem to be more clinical judgment than anything. Anyway, looking at the primary outcome, which was the um, sustained remission at week 28, 
very dramatic difference between the groups. You're talking about 70% with secukinumab versus 20.3% with the placebo group. Uh, week 52 results, likewise, as remarkable, 59.3 versus 8%. The steroid doses were lower, not through the first 28 weeks, because that was pretty much how the protocol is written, but then um, after that. And also the time to flare was longer with active treatment. So very positive study. And I think very exciting. I think polymyalgia rheumatica, giant cell arise, a tremendous unmet need. And this was a study that really as a proof of concept study showed uh, a tremendous value. And the, it was presented by Jens Thiel uh, from Germany. And he said that the, the, even though this is in the time of COVID, they recruited the study faster than anticipated. And the phase three is just started. So certainly eagerly await the, that, uh, that study, that larger study. So I attended the session and I sort of expected that there was going to be a positive result with rituximab and EGPA. There was not. Um, and I didn't know what to expect with this targeting IL-17. But yeah, I think it was a bit of a surprise. My And I, I think all it was good, you know, ninefold higher odds of being in sustained remission on secukinumab if that, compared to placebo. Um, I'm a little disappointed in the size of the trial. Only 52 patients split between the two groups. Um, I'm, a little, I'm yeah. a little disappointed in a lot of steroid use in the first six months, which sort of obscures the true benefit of the drug. And it's not until the second six months that it really shines through. But, you know, uh, you know I, I think that this is an, another way of approaching GCA. The problem is we've got, you know, tocilizumab approved for GCA, and I don't think anybody's using it. I think we're still, rheumatologists are still stuck with steroids. Well, I think we're, we almost have to go with steroids. And I think the approvals for tocilizumab are always much easier for someone who's been on steroids. And that speaks to the st study design, as you're saying, Jack, you can't not treat with steroids because that is the standard of care. Um, but I think this was, as you just say, it's very small, but it was very promising. The SAEs were actually lower in the active treatment group with secukinumab than they were with the placebo which kind of makes sense because steroids can give some side effects. Infection is a little bit more with the second kinemab, but um, I think this was uh, very promising. And I certainly look forward to more studies of this. In a way, it's a, a certainly a brand new, but second kinemab is not a new drug. We really know about it because we've been using it for years now in psoriatic arthritis. You know why they chose this as a target? I mean, IL-17? I mean, they're well, you know, the, the immunopathophysiology of all of our rheumatic diseases uh, it's, it's pretty much like a murder mystery. Uh, the way you, you get it is you go to the, you go to the, you write the last chapter first and then you work backwards and you can always create a rationale going forwards. We don't do so well. We, you know, IL-17 should have worked in IBD and not only did it not work, it caused more problems. Actually, they didn't see any IBD in this study. So I think you could make a immunopathophysiologic rationale. It's uh, more involved with uh, acute inflammation and neutrophils, but also has you know diverse effects on other cell types. So um, I I don't know that I would have bet if I was betting my money that it would have worked, but it did. Yeah, it certainly did. My uh, first one is going to be uh, one that I spotted many weeks before the ACR began, and that's the ARIA study. This is a preclinical RA intervention trial with abatacept or placebo. This is 100 patients enrolled, 98 treated. They were, and they were enrolled if they had arthralgia uh, and a positive ACPA test and evidence of inflammation by MRI. Uh, and this was a six-month trial. The idea was to treat them with either placebo or 
uh, abatacept for six months and then stop drug and then follow them for another 12 months. This is basically the six month results. And uh, it was to me surprising because I kind of expected maybe a marginal effect that might not last, but the primary endpoint was MRI improvement that was seen in 61% on abatacept, only 31% on placebo, but more importantly, how many developed new arthritis, it was more likely uh, developing an RA with placebo, 35% versus ABBA at 8%. And there were more terminations, early terminations on the placebo group. Very, you know, nothing surprising as far as adverse events. And the two things that are a little bit concerning here, one was the people who enrolled had almost two years or more of arthralgias at the time of, enroll of enrollment. So is that truly a, you know, a preclinical RA subset? It's hard to know. Um, they had not, you know, developed synovitis. These patients had an average of three tender joints and no swollen joints and a pain score of about 4.3 out of 10. Uh, and the second point is that um, when asked the question, the uh, um, Jurgen uh, Rec actually said that this was um, the follow-up, the 12-month follow-up off, off drugs still favored abatacept, but they're waiting on the results of the MR um, studies at 12 and 18 months before they can release that data. So I think this is encouraging. I don't think this is yet something I want to start treating my patients with, but I like seeing progress in the field of preclinical RA. Certainly a super important topic, and they're definitely big proponents of it. So why do we wait until someone has a really fully established rheumatoid arthritis before we start treating. We don't do that with cardiovascular disease. We don't wait until someone has their first MI before we lower their cholesterol. But of course, it's fraught with difficulties, uh, including the earlier you go, the further away they are from really fitting the classification criteria of rheumatoid arthritis, the more you'll see spontaneous remissions. Now, limiting it to seropositives goes a long way for that. But still, there's a big danger of over-treating. I think Generally, we can tear abatacept for six months to be relatively benign, and it overall is a course of therapy. But I think that's been a big uh, consideration, both ethically and, as, of course, as far as, as study design. There was a study of methotrexate called PROMPT. There was a study of rituximab called PRAIRIE, but only a single treatment. There's a study of hydroxychloroquine. There's a study of the statins, which stopped and stopped enrolling. So um, there's been sort of not, not been a lot for this, but this was, uh, I think, promising, uh, but we definitely have to see those results further down the line. Right. Yeah. And there are some studies that are still in progress, one with abatacept and another one with hydroxychloroquine. Maybe in, in the next year or two, we'll see the readout on that. So the uh, next, I wanted, the next one I wanted to cover, um, some of this is presented at ULAR, and I kind of wavered on this. This was abstract 1789, and this is the prediction of psoriatic arthritis in patients with psoriasis. And this is from Daphne Gladman's group in Toronto. And the reason I, I thought this was good is I think it's, it's spot on for addressing a super clinically important question. We know that of the uh, patients who have psoriasis, about 20% of them or so will go on to develop psoriatic arthritis, generally eight to 10 years later on average, some even longer. So there's a story there and we know it's 
genetics uh, it may explain some of it, but not a lot. So probably a lot of it is epigenetics, environmental exposures. And they're talking about even the exposome, the things that you're exposed to in the environment that may uh, influence the development of disease. And this has been a super hot topic this year. There have been several publications uh, in the uh, Annals of Rheumatic Disease and in other journals looking at the clinical question of if you take psoriasis patients and treat their psoriasis very thoroughly, do you prevent them from getting psoriatic arthritis? And there are data on either side, which speak to the difficulty of doing an epidemiologic study such as this. Now, in this abstract in 1789, what they did is to, to look for uh, genome-wide methylation changes. And I think that they, they have a great population. They had patients, psoriasis patients, that they followed over the years, and they had half of them who developed rheumatoid, uh, psoriatic arthritis, um, and then they had those who did not. So I have an, a nice match set. And they were able to, using the fact that they did or didn't develop it, they were able to, to find differentially methylated positions uh, that separated those two. Now, this is, of course, would have to be validated. This is really hypothesis generating. But I think this is where the answer is going to be. We're, I think in some years when we're doing room now 2085, or maybe we're not doing it, but um, uh, rheumatology roundup from ACR room now. I mean, we, we, we will know the answer to this. will be, oh, yeah, we know this. This was like never eat yogurt or always eat yogurt or uh, eat yogurt with, uh, with you know, a, a good olive oil or something. We'll know something. The microbiome is probably involved as part of the exposome. But I think these data are relevant and it's, it's kind of a super hot, interesting topic. Yeah, I, I, I've been reporting that stuff um, uh, where is psoriasis preclinical psoriatic arthritis and does intervention, you know, we, you'd think we'd be further along there, but we're just like we are in RA. We're kind of in a quasi land as far as the results. Uh, I, I think, yes, we need research like this to help pave the way on what to do next. Um, and um, since you're on the topic of psoriatic arthritis, um, I thought it was interesting. I don't know that it really changes things, but it's still scientifically um, compelling to look at the study of monozygotic um, twins uh, where, where they're discordant as far as their psoriasis. So the index case has psoriasis, but the monozygotic other twin does not. And they did um, basically microbiome analysis. And they looked, at, they looked at both the skin and the gut, and they showed in the gut they had an um, uh, abundance of uh, a loss, actually a loss of um, rumin, what is it, ruminococcus uh, bromide, and that was sort of um, uh, unique here. And they they sort of postulate in the skin. They also found certain changes. I think that were um, enticing, but interestingly in the scalp, but not on the elbow. So that's a whole nother microbiome that's going that's in play here. Uh, it's it. I think it does say that there probably are differences here that, that may result in risk. The question is, like other microbiome studies, how predictive are they, and you know, um, how do we modulate that? Yeah, I, th I thought that was fascinating and amazing. I mean, to get to get nine pairs of twins discordant for the psoriatic disease, because. Uh, not uncommonly, you know, it's it's one of the stronger genetic 
diseases we see in rheumatology, isn't it? So I thought that was amazing. Um, and of course, the the my the the issue with all these with these studies always ends up being, uh, you know, is it chicken or is it egg? Did the development of psoriasis alter their skin microbiome, which you sure think would be reasonable, and alter their gut microbiome? And uh, I didn't think in this they explored so much the effect of potential treatments, which of course could also impact the microbiome. But uh, yeah, I think this this line of, of research is, is super interesting and I think is going to be um, definitely going to end up showing us something. That was abstract number 0944. Sorry, I left that out. So the changing diseases, of course, a super hot disease um, that you know we've, we've heard a tremendous amount about uh, is lupus. There were, uh, from the FDA session, they said, look at all the new things we have. And you have Vocosporin, you have anaphrolimab, um, new treatments for lupus and a new indication for belimumab for lupus nephritis. So lupus is very hot these days. A lot of research activity going on in that. Uh, kind of a funky abstract I picked was 340, 0340. Uh, I think it was interesting for a couple of reasons. It was an international collaboration with uh, some investigators from China and also with Chandra Mohan, who's in uh, UT Houston now. And it was looking at uh, urinary L-selectin. And the urinary, urinary L-selectin predicts disease activity and histologic changes in lupus nephritis. So they had, uh, it was a, a lupus cohort in China and they looked at 197 um, lupus patients, compared them with 33 patients with chronic kidney disease and 27 healthy volunteers. And they chose to look at urine L-selectin. As, as Jack knows, uh, uh, the endothelial uh, um, adhesion molecules really have a warm a warm spot in our hearts because uh, that's a lot of the research we did when we were both back actually at the lab with the with the pipette. Um, but they anyway they looked at this and um, what they found it was urinary L-selectin levels. Of course, they correct them to urinary creatinine were increased in active lupus nephritis correlated with disease activity um, and was able to discriminate. Uh, better than things like C3, C4, and double-strand DNA titers, correlated with SLEDI score, and um, also with the histopathology, both with the activity index and negatively with the uh, chronicity index. They also tried to tie in the urinary L-selectin levels with the different patterns of immunohistopathologic involvement in lupus nephritis. So this comes on, you know, the, the last couple of meetings that we've had, and there's an act, actually an abstract 1937 that looked at urinary IL-16, which is a, a pro-inflammatory cytokine. And we've, we've talked about that before, but uh, boy, what, a, what a, a tremendous advance it would be to have a urinary marker of disease activity. I mean, how often does it happen in the clinic that you have a lupus patient? And that's the question. And we're, we're measuring protein, but that's slow and indirect and really speaks about damage. We're uh, looking at C3 and C4, which in an individual person can work, but in a group of people, you, um, you know, it, it may not work. So, and a urine test, uh, non-invasive, uh, and also could be mailed in in theory. So it's a lot of excitement with that. And since now we're finally having the ability to have additional treatments for lupus and lupus nephritis, 
Um, I, I, I think that was like super important. Yeah, it, it's, as you uh, were reciting the advantages and um, the, the, the correlations with the clinical status and things we usually measure, it reminded me of the abstract that you also referenced the IL-16 from FAVA last year that we were so high on. And um, you know, I'd like to see more of that and more research on that. And the cell selectin seems like it is following along the same, route, same lines. The problem being that proteinuria isn't all that good a marker. Um, and, and that's the, one of the things that we continue to hang our hat on when it's actually been proven to mis, misguide us. Um, not in all patients, but in too many where we do need a better biomarker. So that's, I think that's a major advance. Um, I want to speak about uh, an, another hot topic from last year. Um, this is abstract 1426. That hot topic was the VEXA syndrome. Uh, it was a plenary session presented by Marcella Ferrada from the NIH. She's a fellow doing fabulous work. Um, and and, I, and I, we also did an interview with her today. You might want to look at that video. But what she did was she showed that um, in a fairly good-sized cohort, over 80 patients with, with VEXAS, they, um, you know, analyze the mutations that they have. Late. And so, of course, there's a mutation, uh, a somatic mutation in the UBA1 um, marrow cells. It's found, it's X-linked. It's only in men. It's mainly seen in older men. Um, these patients were accidentally discovered when they, they when they were, they did some gene studies on them last, last year and it was discovered in 2020 when there was one paper in 2021, there's already 45 papers. And they, they saw that these patients all look like relapsing polychondritis or they had skin disease that looked like sweat syndrome. And then they found these vacuoles and that makes up the acronym that's VEXUS. And anyway, that the outcome of these patients is sort of a mixed bag. Some do okay, mild disease with chondritis of the year. Some, you know, die. And the 10 year survival on this is about 50%. So their analyses looked at the, um, the gene substitutions, specifically valine for methionine at PMET41. And, um, and the, they also looked at a leucine substitution and a threonine. But this PMET41 um, valine substitution is a bad, bad player. Older people, um, survival less than 20% at 10 years. Uh, and so that's an important thing. So they found from their study predictive of poor outcomes was this particular valine um, mute, mutation. And the other thing that was predictive of was the patients who had uh, recurrent transfusions, meaning they probably had bad hematologic and marrow disease that they were requiring transfusions for their anemia. So since you can't do the, the genetic testing, it's not yet widely available. Um, Dr. Ferrata suggested one way, the algorithm they came up with was if you see patients um, with especially relapsing polychondritis, sweet syndrome, any kind of vasculitis, and they have a high MCV and a, a greater than 100 and a platelet count greater than 200, you might want to do some genetic testing. Um, David Beck at NYU does a lot of this testing. He's seen a whole bunch of patients in the last year. Uh, and again, other than sending a, someone to the NIH or to NYU, right now it's, it's, it's having a high index of suspicion. Yeah, when you hear the presentation on VEXIS, the presentations, 
I think everybody's first thought is, oh my, I might, I might be missing this. I might have missed a couple of people with this and dismissed them. And I think it's still very early in terms of what do you do with, for such patients? I mean, of course, everybody gets steroids because everybody walks in our door gets steroids. Um, but that seemed to be a pretty big um, unmet need. And um, somebody's raising the question now. Yeah, they, I don't think for my listening to their lectures, I don't think there was necessarily a preferred treatment. And that's uh, bad because uh, th there's a pretty high morbidity and even mortality with this. And I th I, the other thing I, I think that that raises is, you know, this is super well-defined in, in uh, they found the mutation in the, in the gene and um, uh, how many other somatic mutation diseases are we missing? Uh, you know, these adults who spontaneously develop rheumatic disease, we hadn't paid much attention to that. But uh, here, you know, it's a, and they're harder to look at because especially somatic mutations might be restricted to certain cell lines. So that's a challenge. And it's certainly the people who live and breathe the auto-inflammatory syndromes, um, you know, they're, they're aware of this sort of stuff and they know what they're you know, looking for with these, I think a lot of us don't. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a challenge for sure. 70% of patients followed at the NIH auto-inflammatory fever clinic do not yet have a genetic diagnosis. 30% do. Um, if you're out there wondering, I'm never going to see a vexus, that sort of thing. Um, data presented by Dr. Ferrata said in a large cohort of lapsing polychondritis patients, 8% or one in 12 actually had these mutations. So this is out there. The treatment, um, there isn't anything. It's largely supportive. High-dose steroids are commonly used. There's a number of anecdotal reports suggesting tocilizumab is effective. There's a few cases that from the NIH that says that giving IL-1 inhibitors anakinra led to skin lesions and necrosis, and that was a sort of bad choice. So think about IL-6, think about steroids, and obviously when they're really bad, supportive care. All right. Um... My next abstract, it's uh, 507, and this is uh, tocilizumab in patients with new onset polymyalgia rheumatica. So this comes from Vienna, and also, unfortunately, a small number of, of uh, patients in, enrolled in the study, but I think it was worth highlighting because uh, the results are, are pretty notable and certainly um, say that we should absolutely look for this. Um, it's something we're sort of familiar with because the Association of Polymyalgia and uh, Giant Cell Arthritis, um, and also because we have such tremendous unmet need. I, I personally uh, am, am a methotrexate PMR non-believer, although I think some of our PMR patients are more RA-ish and they may have some peripheral synovitis, and then I think methotrexate is, is reasonable. But as I look at the data, and this has been reviewed, and it's sort of, yeah, um, I don't believe it's, uh, it's, it's a valuable therapy. Uh, methotrexate, I don't think, is a valuable therapy for most of our patients with polymyalgia rheumatica. Um, and, and that's a, a, a tremendous unmet need because now we have steroids. So in this, they had a, a, small, number of, uh, a small number of patients, 36 patients, randomized to tocilizumab or placebo. Um, the primary outcome was glucocorticoid-free remission at week 16, and this uh, showed a tremendous difference. 12 of 19, or 63% of tocilizumab patients, compared to only 2 of 17 uh, with placebo, so 11.8%. Uh, um, also, the time to relapse was better. Um, so overall, 
really, really striking um, sort of results. Uh, pretty much everything they tested was was positive. The cumulative prednisone dose the time was lower. The time to uh, the first relapse was longer. Um, so uh, small numbers of small numbers of patients enrolled in the study. But I think um, crucially important, and I will, I'll add in kind of a, a, a mulligan here, although it's not my study, but uh, in a way this makes total sense because of the uh, prevalence of polymyalgia rheumatica in patients with giant cell arteritis, we know that. And there was a, another um, poster from Europe, this one, uh, 0466, and it was subclinical large vessel vasculitis in polymyalgia rheumatica. Um, so they talked about the potential relationship and half of giant cell arise patients may have polymyalgia. The other way around doesn't work. It's, it's only about um, 15% of polymyalgia patients will get giant cell arise. But what they did is took newly diagnosed polymyalgia rheumatic uh, PMR patients, polymyalgia rheumatica, without any signs suggestive of uh, giant cell arteritis. And they used um, hip and shoulder ultrasound and looked at uh, five vessel uh, territories bilaterally, temporal, um, carotid, subclavian, axillary and and femoral arteries. And they, they if they found the halo sign, which you can see in uh, vasculitis of larger vessels, that was considered a positive finding, as was an intima media thickness uh, of 0.344 in the temporal artery, 0.42 in the common and one uh, in the uh, uh, um, uh, one millimeter in the common carotid, axillary, and subclavian. What they ended up finding was that it was uh, 22% of the patients. Um, with polymandromatica had positive ultrasound findings of the vessel. So is this subclinical giant cell arteritis? Obviously it'd be super interesting to follow these patients along and say, well, what happens to them? They go on to frank giant cell arteritis. Um, these are the patients maybe you'd want to treat earlier with tocilizumab or in the future, maybe secukinumab. Um, and, but tied in with the positive effect of the tocilizumab in polymyalgia itself. Uh, I thought these were really, I thought these are exciting, um, exciting data. The question is, will they move the needle? Steroids, really cheap, really toxic. Uh, tocilizumab, really expensive, but much safer compared to steroids. Um, and why shouldn't they be used more in GCA and also in PMR, where, you know, I, everyone does the same thing. Sir, you have a new diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. How long am I going to be on steroids? Well, probably a year or two. The data is very clear. Everybody's on steroids for more than five years because we can't get them all. Is that uncontrolled inflammation or is that, you know, unable to distinguish that from steroid withdrawal syndrome, which is a really big problem in someone um, starting uh, on steroids? So uh, I like these studies. I think we should be using less steroids. I think we should be using more biologics or more truly effective therapies, but that's not currently an indication. That would be an off-label use, but uh, I don't see why the companies don't actually go for um, that indication. That'd be my suggestion. Um, I want to go to um, not the lies that doctors tell themselves, but maybe what patients are telling themselves about the therapies they take. Um, this is abstract 1158. 
uh, from Caleb Michaud. Um, Caleb did a follow-up study to something that happened long ago, 2006. Dr. Fred Wolf, long before that, I think he started in the 30s, his national data bank with a bazillion patients. Back then it was already 17,000 patients. In the, in the 30s? Oh no, it was, uh, he got the first, he was using the first handy computers, oh, I think in the late, late 60s is when he started. Um, it might as well have been the 30s. The funny thing about Fred's abstracts, because when we used to review abstracts back in, you know, in the 80s, 90s, and two, we used to get these abstracts and they were blinded. They would like white out the author's name and like the institution where they came from. But you knew Fred's abstracts because yeah. it was 34,000 patients were followed for 14 years. You know, nobody had data like that other than the National Data Bank and, and, and uh, Fred Wolf. Um, hey, Fred, hope you're listening. So anyway, Caleb has taken on um, this data bank and, and now it's now called the Forward Study. Back in 2006, I thought Fred wrote a seminal paper, which was, you know, why do patients, um, what are patients' beliefs about their drugs and their, their the, the drugs that they take? And he made the very clear statement that patients were unwilling to change for fear of what may happen. They would rather stick with the devil they know having partial or even poorly controlled disease as opposed to going to a new drug, which, you know, the doctor is raving about it, but I don't know. I get all the bad stuff. You know, they have the, every patient thinks they have the sword of Damocles over their head and that all bad things are going to happen to them. But that was a, a key takeaway and, and, it, and it fits in well with human psychology and uh, the Ellsberg effect uh, where uh, we will all avoid ambiguity at all costs. And if you don't really know what you're stepping into, you're not going to make the step. And so that was a take home message. And so Caleb actually repeated the survey in a different era, 2021, and compared the results of 2006 and 2021. The bottom line is that while patients have changed and drugs have changed, I'm sorry, while drugs have changed in that time period, patients and their behaviors really haven't changed that much. So they had thousands of patients, but they did have a cohort of 442 patients who had, took both surveys at both times. And their behavior was largely the same with a minor sort of change as far as why won't you change? Well, I'm still worried about risk of side effects. My doctor thinks is the best therapy. I'm worried about loss of control. They're, I don't know I don't know that that medicine is really going to be better for me. It just turns out that in 2021, there seems to be less buzz or less worry about insurance uh, and the cost of medicines, which was obviously a big thing back in 2006. So I think this is still tells us we have a lot of work to do in trying to communicate and educate our patients and turn them into good patients. You know, no one knows how to be a good patient and, and we, we're supposed to teach. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, you know, I think this is, uh, it's nice to see, but it's really incredibly evident in the clinic. I think when you talk with individual patients and you say, well, you could do better, um, and then the patients say, well, I could do worse because they remember they were at one level of disease activity and they got better and you, you want to get them to a new level. And I think that's, that's the essence of what you were saying. Uh, the, what humans tend not to do is they don't want to take a risk to get better if it means a risk of doing worse. They're the conservative in that way. They don't want to do worse. And I, I think that undermines a lot of the, the whole treat to target uh, issue. Treat to target sounds great. And of course, well, who wouldn't want to treat to a target of zero disease activity? Well, everybody would, of course. And I think the, the risk the sort of matters. And we see that as well. And it's interesting because I'd love to see this survey give people different 
choices like raising the dose of methotrexate, that's not that big a deal. But adding a new drug to your methotrexate, that's a big deal. Or changing this drug to a different drug, that's a big deal. And I think people would, I bet people would vote that same way. But I think, you know, we, we see this in the clinic all the time. Remember, Jack, we did a poster from uh, not the past ULAR, but the one prior where they had a treat target study. And by year two, uh, about a, so patients entered the study, they agreed to the study. And the study was that if they were not at target, they were going to change therapy according to an algorithm. By the end of the study, most of the people say, nope, ain't going to do it, ain't going to change. They were good and enough. The, and the doctors bailed out and the patients bailed out. The, the doctors bailed out and the doctors bailed out because they said, well, maybe it's temporary or maybe I'll just throw some steroid at them and they'll get better. Um, and I, you know, I think so th this, but I, I think this really rings true. Anybody said, you know, every, you can get every patient to change therapy just isn't really, they're not seeing patients. No. So, um, all right, what am I doing next here? Um, let me see. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with uh, um, one that I think I liked because it, it's, it's like you're ordering from the menu. And, you know, if I'm the waiter, I'm like, it's not the bar exam, Dr. Kevin, I'll choose something. So we're going to change diseases to vasculitis. And I, I love this one because it agrees with me. So of course I like it. And of course it's right. Cause it agrees with me. This is 419. Uh, Post-induction anchotiter does not predict mortality or renal outcomes a target trial emulation study. So that sounded very cool too. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like that, you know, the one of them Oculus devices where I'm, I'm a fake investigator examining a fake patient. Um, but what they did is to take uh, people from a large ankh-associated vasculitis cohort that they have over 17 years. All the patients were positive for PR3 or MPO. Um, they used a single reference lab for the ankh-titers uh, and then they, they looked at outcomes and did a lot of modeling to say what happens if you get a negative titer with your uh, ANCA and, or what happens if you don't. So they did 589 patients. They treated them as they were doing. First, it was really cytoxin-based. That more recently, it was rituximab-based, and 48% um, of the patients got rituximab. About a third, 32% achieved a negative titer with the ANCA after a year uh, of induction. What does that matter? Well, it turns out, and they did, looked at according to a whole bunch of outcomes, risk of death, risk of end-stage renal disease, um, other sorts of out outcomes related to the becoming negative, and it doesn't matter. And I look at this and I say, well, of course it doesn't matter. You have rituximab, which is going to uh, have a dramatic effect on your B cells, decrease autoantibody titers, decrease other antibody titers. And that's a mechanism of action apart from any effect on clinical disease. Same with cytoxin. We forget, especially our younger colleagues who are uh, younger, who haven't used a lot of cytoxin, it had an incredible effect on B cells and an incredible effect on antibodies and therefore on autoantibodies. So um, this comes up a lot in the clinic. I, I, you know, I, th I think a lot of the times, uh, the, you know, the, we, our younger colleagues especially love tests, they love test results, love to look at titers. Um, you know, it's like, ooh, it's, it's the anchor was, was 5.62, now it's 5.50. Um, it doesn't matter. Uh, it really it depends on, you know, you, you treat the patient based on signs and symptoms, 
Bianca helps with the disease uh, diagnosis. It doesn't help otherwise. And there's really not a lot of point in chasing it or discussing it. So is ANCA like the ANA or like the double-stranded DNA? ANA meaning once you're positive, you're positive. Who cares? Never test it again. There's nothing to be gained from that. Um, and anyone who does repeated serial ANAs, you're just kidding yourself. That's a gigantic clinical mistake. Um, but double-stranded DNA has some predictive value in some people, and you got to figure out who that works in. And that's been my impression with ANCA. It has some predictive value with some people. Did Were they able, able to look at something like that as a subset and where it does seem to make some sort of sense here? Well, I think it's it most importantly is a different cohort. Uh, ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, as we know, very sensitive to getting hypogammaglobulinemic with rituximab. Don't know why. Um, there's a, a brilliant interplay between autoimmune and immunodeficient diseases illustrated, I think, in ANCA-associated vasculitis. So the people are so prone to get, uh, and that's different than it is in lupus. Um, so I don't think I don't think you can actually get at that answer, but I think it says chasing the titer isn't going to help you because even if they get negative, they can still have uh, bad outcomes with the same frequency as those who didn't achieve a negative titer. Mm. All right. So um, I'm going to go with a simple one um, before we get into 1133. This is an abstract 1909 from Hogue et al. This was a study of um, almost 20 something thousand patients with RA and lupus. And they looked at what compliance to antimalarials did as far as outcomes over time. The bottom line was that if you were compliant with just simply hydroxychloroquine, um, it didn't seem to change your mortality statistics. And that was the end point here, um, you know, cardiovascular death. Uh, but if you were non-compliant, um, you, you, you didn't do as well. Actually, let's look at the reverse. If you were non-compliant, that was what they compared it to. If you were compliant, it lowered your risk of cardiovascular mortality by 50 to 60%. So it's a very large number. Uh, and they did the analyses many different ways. Uh, and it was seen in both cohorts of RA and, and lupus. And, and I bring it up because I'm perpetually perplexed by non-compliance. Uh, it's the thing I don't know about, but it is, I know it's in the room. I know it's coloring a lot of my successes and, and or failures. And I, I just wish we had a better grasp of it. Yeah, it's, is there anything that's more important? I mean, I, I think I, I probably, like, like many of us, if you have a young trainee, a medical student with you, they'll, they'll think maybe you're slipping a bit because you asked that same patient three times about whether they're taking their medicine. And that's the most important thing, I think, in our, in our history. I think with the electronic record, the, the person who's bringing the patient back said, are you taking all your medicines, just like it says? And they're shaking their head up and down. And of course, the patient says yes. But the most important thing is, is compliance. And um, I think it's a moving target and uh, no drug is going to work. The, the drug that's going to be least effective is the one that you're not taking. So um, is, is, you know, it's a, it's a, it's important. Um, it just, yeah, I wish we had a better, a better doing that. Maybe, maybe one of them watches, it's not my, not my Timex, which is still analog, but uh, one of them watches that like, you know, the, when you when the patient comes in the room and says, "Oh yeah, yeah, Doctor Kush, I've been taking that pack twice a day," and the watch is like, bam, bam. 
<laughs> so here's a, a question about, uh, uh, from Gerald Eisenberg. Chasing ANCA levels can be helpful in a subset of ANCA vasculitis patients. Requires some follow-up over multiple months before the relationship is clear. And I think that's what Jack was getting at, that you check double-stranded DNA a lot in your lupus patients, and some of them doesn't matter at all. And there are some that it, that it might. And I think that's going to be, of course, that's going to be true. But I think overall, um, in, in, you, you can count on that. And it's important to follow all the uh, clinical information. So for my next one, I'm going to get into a topic we'll go off a little bit more on. Um, and that is uh, the, the uh, jackanibs. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, some of the interest in a new jackanib. This is Brepositinib. Um, I thought, isn't, isn't Brepo the, the Marx brother that, that he's never a, made it yeah, to He's the, the one who doesn't make it to the movies, yeah. Um, Brepo Sitinib, uh, Selective Tick 2 JAK1 inhibitor in psoriatic arthritis. And this was presented at the meeting. Um, Phil Meese did this, and um, they have the, the typical uh, design uh, with three different doses of Brepo or placebo. Uh, the ACR 20s were about 65 versus 45. Um, they did see a nice signal in the skin. The past few 75s were like 60 to 70% compared to 24%. Um, MDA was notable in the higher doses. So they saw a lot of the good outcomes with the high dose. They saw some uh, benefit in anthocytis. Um, then with the uh, the safety. And I think that's where we'll get into the discussion of jackanibs. So it's a different, but is it different? We know that uh, the FDA has had a lot of activity this year. We'll talk about that in the, the talking about the FDA session here. Um, is this different than the other jackanibs? Well, boy, it had a really uh, a, a good profile in terms of side effects. Um, no MACE events, no uh, GI uh, perforations, but they did see zoster in the active treatment and not in the placebo. And they did see um, the, a little bit more of a signal with the liver function tests um, and also a signal, especially at the higher doses with the CK. So is it different? It had pretty notable skin effects. And we had seen some data with bimekizumab, which is a TIC2 specific inhibitor. So that raises the question about jackanibs in uh, all of our diseases? Are they going to be, are, are uh, different specificities based on in vitro assays going to correlate with different efficacy and more importantly, with different toxicities? Is this different than any of our current JAK inhibitors, which we say are, you know, kind of selective, but in fact, they're not. They, they do, you know, you have to get more than one and TIC2 is part of the same Janus kinase family. So it's not surprising that you're going to get a jack and tick two at some point, um, and and I think that the story is going to be told by whether you get more profound immunosuppression, maybe with more side effects, like you mentioned with bimekizumab, where you have the dual inhibitor of IL-17A and F, seems to be really good and is really effective. And I don't see this really big toxicity, but there really is more uh, candidiasis events with oh, yeah. bimekizumab. I misspoke. Sorry, I meant Ducravacitinib, not Bimekizumab. Bimekizumab, IL-17 inhibitor, Ducravacitinib, the TIC2 inhibitor. Sorry, thanks right. for correcting me, Jack. Yeah. So, no, I, I, I think it's, I like the, uh, the, the new introduction, I, I'm, I, but I'm immediately looking for, you know, an at least equal 
clinical efficacy um, uh, number, but then I'm really concerned about whether you may, um, by uh, reaching across and involving TIC2, you know, you know the, the Cravacid and the, the safety of that looked fairly good. And uh, we're not seeing anything um, uh, worrisome at this point, so although it's very early in its development. But I think that uh, we're going to have to watch this one just as well. Yeah, so that raises the issue that we're talking about. And there was a, a very nice, the FDA safety presentation. I don't remember looking and seeing how many people are there. It's always a very well attended session. Uh, and it, it uh, really was very nice this year. They, they, they covered a lot of things. They covered emergency use authorizations for COVID, for uh, the, our, our, our drugs, for tocilizumab and for baricitinib. They covered the new indications for lupus, like we talked about, and Avacaban for vasculitis. But they had a lot of, uh, Dr. Raj Paul did a great job talking about the oral surveillance study, which is uh, a study of, oh, and somebody, oh, Jack wrote in to tell them what session it was. Excellent. It's worth looking at for sure. Um, Oral surveillance, basically, uh, the elevator pitch, it was a, a FDA-mandated study, post-marketing study as uh, part of the REMS agreement to look at a risky population, age greater than 50, with one risk factor for MACE events, and to look at the development of MACE and malignancy in RA patients on methotrexate um, treated with two doses of tofacitinib or with a TNF inhibitor, which was Umira or adalimumab in the U.S. and etanercept in the rest of the world. Yeah, and uh, obviously this was a big ticket item. There were a number of abstracts on this. Um, 858 was a plenary session with Christina Charles Showman presenting the data on MACE events and 1940, Jeff Curtis presenting the data on cancer events here. Uh, and and I, I do uh, think that there's a lot of discussion to be had here. Uh, as everyone knows, September 1st, the FDA came down with this decision warning everyone there was gonna be a box warning, not just for tofacitinib, the main drug that was in this 1133 oral surveillance study, but also for the other JAK inhibitors in this therapeutic space, meaning that baricitinib and hepatocytinib would also get a box warning worrying about a cardiovascular risk and um, a, a cancer risk. Cardiovascular risk were MACE events. Cancer risk seems to be fairly clear that it's lung, maybe with some lymphoma and maybe some uh, non melanoma skin cancer numbers that are higher. The data is always seems to be worse for the, uh, the, uh, the 10 milligram BID dose. That was true for the VTE warnings that came out 2019. Um, that's made it into everybody's label, but it carries forward into this cardiovascular and cancer risk warning. Um, already there were some instances where the, um, the five milligram BID, the standard dose that we use, didn't seem to have much of a risk, right? Uh, well, first, let's talk about not not being non-inferior, okay, and what that means. Yeah, that's a it's a tricky concept, and um, boy, you're, we're all having to learn a lot, a lot more clinical epi than we used, learned when we were fellows. So the non-inferiority margin was set at one point eight, and you say, well, wow, that's big, um, and that means basically that the the highest chance within a 95% confidence interval can't be that this drug is 80% more likely. And say, well, that's a lot. Why not make it small? Why not make it 1.3, which it had been. Trouble is, in a, uh, it's the numbers. If you look at this study, it had 
4,400 patients enrolled over years to get uh, uh, hundreds, you know, just over 100 uh, events or a couple of hundred events for the different outcomes. So you're looking at numbers and what this is really looking for uh, a signal, if you will. And yeah, and then it's not non-inferior, which, um, you know, you always think, well, what does that mean if you're if you're, you know, if you if you said that to your child, he's like, "Have you been smoking?" He's like, "I've not been not smoking." Um, you know that it's not the same with not oh. being non inferior, uh, but uh, obviously, it, you know, raise the signal. But also, on the other hand, as we're looking at this, and in the presentation uh, from the FDA, they uh, from excuse me from the uh, in the five different posters they had, they also had a number needed to harm. And, you know, so the difference between the drugs was, uh, you know, up, up near 100 or sometimes a few hundred people. So you'd have to treat a few hundred people with with the TOFA. Uh, you would get one extra event for some of these, such as the cancer, compared to the treatment with the TNF inhibitor. Um, so you got to put it in into context. The, the, I think the good thing from these presentations were that it looked like you could say that really a ton of the risk was in people over 65 who were smokers. And um, if you take those things out, if they're less than 65, they're not smoking and they don't have a previous cardiac, uh, uh, like a, a previous MI, the risk of the MACE events is really not that different, certainly with the lower dose. Yeah. The um, numbers needed to harm from MACE was 412 and for cancer 275. And, you know, as we were discussing earlier, like, that's a fairly good number for cancer, but it depends on the cancer. If it's skin cancer, who cares, right? If it's, but if it's pancreatic cancer where you're not going to do so well, that's not um, very comforting. And so the other question on all of this is, is this JAK inhibitor gone wild or is this TNF inhibitor doing a better job at cardioprotection? And, and we presented data last year that for the first time, I think it was the Swedes who were starting to show that with long-term TNF inhibitor use, they were seeing less cancers. Finally, you, you'd expect that if cardiovascular risk and infection risk and cancer risk is all driven by inflammation, shouldn't control of inflammation bring these numbers down? Well, the Swedes showed it last year, um, and it's been shown for a long time, beginning with Fred Wolf a long time ago and many others showing that methotrexate, but also especially TNF inhibitors are very good at lowering cardiovascular risk and cardiovascular death, especially when you're on drug for more than a year or two. And that's kind of what happened in this study. I mean, you, I think you could easily argue that it wasn't that the, the JAK inhibitor that's to blame here. I mean, it just didn't do as well as the TNF inhibitor. That's yeah. just a contrary view, but who you not know this study wasn't actually designed to answer that question. And we'll have data, it'll be a while, um, but there is this very similarly designed study with baricitinib that's underway. So I think that'll help address the question of uh, hopefully is this you know, unique drug, which certainly FDA is treating this as a class. Um, and I think that's the conservative point to say, well, there are similar mechanisms. They have similar patterns of AEs. Otherwise, you have to show us that you're different. And I think that's going to be the, the FDA position. So someone asked us, does the risk of MACE the same between TOPA, Barry, and UPA? We, we would have to, you have to see. Um, and that, boy, that would be very, very large study. Right. You know, there's, oh. no way, there's no way of knowing. Um, another question from uh, Eduardo uh, Paivo asks, um, why is the NNH so much lower for cancer compared to cardiovascular? The study was basically a cardiovascular, like, you know, bomb waiting to go off. They were... Age 60 smokers, 
not on aspirin with one or more cardiovascular risk factors and family histories. So this study was more designed to have a cardiovascular readout than it would have been to have a cancer readout. It gets a cancer readout largely because of the age of the group being studied. So, and the smoking and the smoking. Oh, lung cancer smoking was, was a big risk factor. Yeah. Lung cancer is the most. Yeah. We got a couple of minutes left, Jack. Do you, the topic we haven't talked about are the, there are one or two abstracts on that COVID thing. COVID, COVID. <laughs> oh, you mean the flu? Um, the Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of, um, um, I think, good presentations. And um, I think especially with uh, uh, around the issue of vaccination and uh, are our patients immunosuppressed and should we be um, worrying about them? I think Jazz Singh had a nice, a nice presentation. I can't, like I need to find that. Is L L seventeen? L seventeen? No, L sixteen. Excuse me. Yeah, L sixteen. Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to. Yeah, no, that's not it. Um, anyway, the the data was I think pretty um, impressive in that when and they they drew their he drew his data from a nationwide registry that's linked to EMR. So it's probably the best and largest. COVID outcomes registry. And in that cohort, they found already 500,000 um, autoimmune patients, RA, PSA, gout, um, um, vasculitis, a bunch of other things. And they looked at the influence of the diagnoses. They call those immunosuppressed patients. They compared them to non-immunosuppressed patients in that same EHR. And they looked at the influence of the drugs that we use in treating those patients. And the readout you know, was that we saw more um, uh, uh, COVID infections um, and these were breakthrough COVID infections. So this, this 500,000 people had already been vaccinated uh, with 70% of the vaccine used was with a Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, about 20-something percent were getting the Moderna vaccine. But the data were the same for both vaccines. But of the vaccinated people, the chance of getting infected was like 41 to 46 per 1,000. This is a breakthrough infection. If you had an autoimmune um, rheumatic disease, AIRD, um, compared to 31 in, uh, per thousand in the non-immunosuppressed uh, population. Uh, amongst our patients who might be at higher risk, it was RA, gout, vasculitis, and patients with multiple uh, autoimmune diseases. I'm not sure what that means. That means it's probably diagnosed by a primary care doctor. But nonetheless, um, things that didn't pan out in this breakthrough infection were things like lupus. And uh, actually, the highest one was, was polymyositis and dermatomyositis. I had the highest risk. And then lastly, the drugs that seemed to have risk was mostly the, the biologics and traditional DMARDs and targeted synthetics didn't seem to have a higher risk. Well, the rituximab, I think, always yeah. always shows up. And that's, uh, um, I think, very consistent. The rest, boy, these data, are, you know, they're hard. And as somebody raised in the questions on the side, um, you know, what about the uh, confounding by indication? You're looking at breakthrough infections, but aren't you more likely to test your rheumatic disease patients than your non-rheumatic disease patients? They're going to the doctor more. They're filling out those questionnaires. Have you had a loss of a sense of smell or a sneeze or things like that? So it's still, I, I don't think it's a very big worrisome signal, um, but I think, you know, we'll, we'll have to see when all these data get put together. There are dozens of COVID abstracts, um, vaccine, non-vaccine, booster vaccine. Right. I, and I think we, you know, we, we really need to, you know, they're different one from the other. I think the message is with rituximab, you really have to watch. 
otherwise, it seems like um, you know the the other risk factors still seem to be more important: overweight and age and such. And age and and those risk factors still are dominant in bad outcomes, and, and including in breakthrough infections. But I'm a little concerned about the messages we're getting from the GRA and from studies like this that are saying there's good diseases and bad diseases. There's good drugs and bad drugs. And, you know, uh, and I don't think it's quite that simple. I think that rituximab seems to be, you know, a, a unique risk factor. But I think a lot of the bad drug associations are patients with active disease getting bad drugs or tough drugs. And I think activity seems to be the driving force to infection risk amongst our patients more so than any one diagnosis per se or any one therapy. That's my take on the data thus far. All right. So Jack, as we wrap up. Yep. Next year, we're going to be where? Well, we're going to be live in Philadelphia. And I don't twitch per se, but I'm trying to convince Jack to start up a a Twitter uh, hashtag, uh, bring Jack and Artie back to ACR for rheumatology roundup. I guess that's kind of long for a hashtag, isn't it? That, that, you know, no one's taken it yet. So it's, it's all ours. We're going to own it. And yeah, yeah, everyone should get to Twitter and and let's start that campaign. Um, (laughs) Thanks everyone for tuning in. Tell your friends to watch the video. Uh, We'll see you next year. Thanks, Jack.